Welcome to episode three of the second half. I'm John Gilbert and I'm in conversation with Dr. Paul Sewell, OBE. Part three is titled Can't Buy Me Love. Paul and I discuss doing your career your way, risk, entrepreneurial drive and making money. If you've listened to episodes one and two, you will have heard us referencing the title of Paul's autobiography, Half a Lettuce. So for the benefit of anyone who has wondered what that means, we're going to start right there. Well, it wasn't called Half a Lettuce originally, but when I was looking at the notes white screen and thinking, I've got a week to fill here on my holidays, I thought, we'll do this. And the first title I had was, I think I got away with it. Which uh, showcases my imposter syndrome because I've sort of felt like that all my life with a lot of stuff really. But I didn't like that very much. Uh, And Half a Lettuce came next and very quickly because it's a story, it's a piece of Sewell fruit family folklore uh, that I've used in the the little talks I give for for many, many years. Uh, And it's about uh, York Market actually. I, I used to love. York Market, it was busy, it was bustling and it was fun. And my dad loved it as well. All apart from uh, the American tourists. Uh, Because, and there were lots of American tourists in York, and still are probably. Uh, And they used to touch his peaches. And my dad did not like his peaches being touched very much. It used to agitate him. Uh, But there was this particular American tourist one day... Uh, approached a, a, a young kid called Mike who's 15, 16 years of age my dad always had one of these uh, there, were, there were runners that brought the fruit from the wagon flashed the stall up etc and the, the American tourist didn't realise he was, wasn't serving and he went up to Mike and asked him if he could have, have half a lettuce and Mike didn't really know how to reply so he looked at the back of the stall where my dad used to sit like a, 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 a almost a Yorkshire budder on an orange box not serving on, just observing matters. And Mike went round the back of the stall and whispered in my dad's ear, Mr. Sewell, this knobhead American wants half a lettuce. But he hadn't realised the American had followed him round and was stood by the side of him. And Mike noticed this and quickly thought, and this gentleman wants the other half. <laughs> uh, and my dad liked, liked that. He, 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 and at the end of the day, he said, uh, Mike... Uh, that was really quick thinking earlier on. You know, congratulations on that. I like it. Uh, but tell me, how long have you been with me? He said, two weeks, Mr. Sewell. He said, but that's not that's not a, a Hull accent. That's not a York accent, is it? He said, no, it's a Hull accent, Mr. Sewell. I'm from Hull. I'm from Hesler Road in Hull. And I said, well, what are you doing here? He said, well, the family had to get out. It's just full of rugby players and prostitutes. And my dad said, my wife's from Hesler Road. By the way, that's my mother. And Mike said, oh, she play for. <laughs> so, so, so Mike uh, exhibited to my dad a streetwise, maybe he's called it Nouse, which is like a basic streetwise intelligence. Mike was a bottom streamer at school, but he had Nouse streetwise intelligence. He could add the orders up, he could sort his bet out, uh, but he would never have done academically at school. And Mike actually ended up as last person standing in dad's business 30 years afterwards. Uh, when it finally closed on Gypsyville. So half a lettuce it had to be, I think. Mm. And that's through your journey then? Well, there's more than just talking about Nouse within there, having had the opportunity to read the book. I mean, any autobiography, but yours, I think, stronger than many others, is just about knowing yourself. And I wonder what that was like as a reflective process. Oh, hugely cathartic. Uh, 
surprising as well. You, you, you don't think you have a recollection, but once you start writing a story down, as you write that down and commit it, the next story comes up. So it's like a chain. There's a chain link that one story leads to another and all of a sudden you've got the shape of a chapter. It was really weird. I've never written anything before. But what I do know is if you commit stuff to writing, it somehow changes it. That's why we have performance agreements at the school group. Commit your promises down on paper. Uh, you, you have more commitment to them. But also, as you are committing them to paper, you really think them through. And that's what I found with the book. Okay. So I'd like to talk in this section about doing it your way. And football is obviously still something you're very passionate about. You're still speaking a lot of sporting terms, yeah. not as a player and, and as a coach. And actually what your book does very well is it, it does it in a very practical sense, which um, listening to what you say, I just think that makes absolute sense. Whereas sometimes sporting analogies can be a bit of a mess. So you've cleared up some of those, which is really good. Um, knowing the business, but then knowing yourself. And one example that really jumped out to me in the book, you were going to speak in the States and on the call with the event organisers beforehand and had asked them about where you would keep your animals. But you did that knowing that the PR guy had advised you not to do that and knowing that that probably wasn't going to land with the American sense of humour, but yet you did it anyway. Looking back on that, it was, that was just the naughty boy in me. They, they were totally in charge of the conversation, driving it, and and I thought, well, let's just change the, change the scenario here a bit and uh, uh, ask them where I was going to keep my animals because I don't use PowerPoint but I do use animals in my presentation and knowing the Americans uh, per chance for not having our sense of humour uh, that, that that hit the spot it was great uh, before my PR guy actually shut me up and said <laughs> no we're, we're joking and they said very funny sir <laughs> and then even within the book as well I mean some of the chapter headings so one of them is called then they expect you to get a career it's this thing about conformity which we discussed before do you feel that your confidence to be yourself grows with experience yes well if the experiences are good ones if the experiences are you know you build on the stuff you do successfully and, and you're happy at doing and you're great at and you don't try too hard and get too bothered about what you're not great at because we're all we've discussed before haven't we we're all great at two or three things and it's finding what those are and, and probably what you're happy is doing, uh, generally. Uh, I think, you know, if, if, if you find those things, you, you build the confidence. And, uh, and then you have the confidence to bring those other people in around you in making a team that are, are good at what you're not good at. And then you, then you start to cook. What's been the cost of business success? Do you mean costs in the way of entrepreneurs first family syndrome? because you see a lot of entrepreneurs that actually lose their first family due to being obsessed with growing this business. And you meet an older entrepreneur with a successful business and they're actually in a second family. Or you can get a, a fat, unhealthy entrepreneur, uh, the obsessed fanatic, the business bore, where they're so obsessed in, in that. I think those are prices to pay. They're, they're obvious. But then again, I think there's a price to pay for anything, John, isn't there? You know, anything you want to do in life. I wanted to play football at a certain level, so it wasn't going out boozing with your friends on a Friday night. There was a price to pay. I wanted to get that very unlikely degree, so uh, I wasn't down at the University Union having a great time. I was back up trying to prove everybody thus far wrong. So I think 
for anything worthwhile in life, there's a price to pay. It's surfacing what that is and seeing whether whether you're prepared to pay it. But I think a big a big price now. I'm an, I'm in added time, and you're coming into the second half. Is is the frustration when you look back of unfulfilled potential, of not being as good as you could be. Uh, and trust me, I, I see more frustration at my sort of age, looking back at un- unfulfilled potential, than I do uh, people having paid too much price. I think, I think if you're aware, and I know you're very aware in speaking to you about around your family, what you want out of life, and I think people of your age are much more so than my age. Uh, I think I said earlier on, you know, children and your family that that you might miss out on if you just want to grow a business and you're obsessed to grow the business. Uh, I'm a big advocate in taking that time with your family because you won't get it back and you've got this long career. You know, you guys are going to be working till you're 70 rather than 60, uh, but you're going to be living to 90 and 100, so the balance of the lifetime is going to be fine. So you'll have the luxury of having it all, having... Uh, having that time with your family and make sure you do get the most out of that and you do a decent job there and then maybe returning to the business uh, and uh, with a, a bit a bit wiser, a bit more knowledgeable, more 10,000 hours under your belt and maybe kicking off an entrepreneurial issue later on in life. I think that's, that's on the cards as well. When I left here after our last discussion, I left in a very good mood. You really inspired me and you really made me feel positive about myself in a few ways Um, but one of the main ways was I realised that I was in a subconscious race to do something your advice to that was just relax about it and and take your time and then the other thing is you've just mentioned it there is these conversations have clarified to me that there is a second half beyond the I wondered if I was having a bit of a not midlife crisis but I think 40 is one of those ages Mm. where people think about oh god yeah I'm getting yeah. I'm, I'm, am I still young? I don't know if I'm still young. I feel young, but in, in society's eyes, I'm, I'm not young anymore. This point around, if you've prioritised your family, which I have over the business, absolutely, that family are not going to be there in the family home forever. They're always going to be part of your life, of course they are, but they're going to need you less. And therefore, my role as a provider uh, can actually shift towards the business in a great degree, but without that personal cost. And it's like, Again, I'm going to say it for about the third time and it'll probably get edited out. Mm-hmm. Sounds so obvious, but it was like, I, I, I drove away from here thinking, yeah, that's really exciting. And and for the first time, Paul, it made me much more excited about this second half than maybe I had been when I had yeah. been concentrating on looking back and worried about unfulfilled potential, forgetting, of course, I've got another 30 years of working to do. Yeah, and then you put pressure on yourself, don't you? I, I think everything's going to benefit from the very best you the very best, most fulfilled you. So if you like to go for a run, go for a run. If you want that project knocking off at work, get it knocked off. But realise that then the very best you and fulfilled you goes back to the family and gets the very best out of family life. It's this ecosystem, isn't it? And I think uh, you're a generation, I think, that's put a lot of pressure on yourselves to achieve etc by a time scale and very goal orientated and that's good good in many ways but uh, sometimes um, yeah I was right you do need to go a bit easy on yourself and relax a little bit and relax performers I don't know if I've ever played golf I couldn't relax at golf so I, my golf balls went all over the place I used to tense up but at football because I had this inner confidence I could go on and relax 
because uh, so I think you know being self-aware respecting your needs not being a slave to everybody else's needs the businesses you know the business your family etc you've got to become a, a self-confident fulfilled individual before you can give either of those things in anything and that's not being selfish that's just realizing that you have your needs and you know you need a little bit here and there and what about with yourself then because when you love doing something i've heard this before about people criticizing entrepreneurs and saying we're just working all of the time and therefore how can you be happy you're just working yourself to death and then i've heard them say but i love doing what i'm doing this this is what i want to be spending my time yeah you know get a job you love you'll never work it in your life and all that of course and i think different people john i think uh, I, i get the whole of my buzzes out of people and seeing their progress and bringing teams together and seeing them win. I can't go into uh, on a building site and do the time and motion and the programs and get my rocks off about the technology or, you know, getting technological solutions to stuff. Most of my stuff is on the right-hand side of the brain and you know, people in, and teams and, and making sure we get the right people in the right team, motivated, right, and they'll produce the goods. So recognising me, you know, I think I say it in the book, I'm a footballer, then a football coach, and then just taking all that into business, which there are some remarkable... Uh, in fact, I think sport does it much better than business in many ways. Spotting talent, recruitment, talent management, pace and metabolic rate, looking after the players, you know, uh, welding them into the right formation, getting their energy levels up, appreciating what the opposition are doing. All that stuff I've brought from my sporting life, and it's been so appropriate for the business life there is a potential downside to this and there is risk so when you received your honorary doctorate in 2010 you recited the William Arthur Ward poem Risk and is that something that you've been self-aware of throughout your career and what's your attitude to risk that's a really good question well the, the poem I discovered when I was doing some talks for the ignition program for entrepreneurs only and i discovered this poem uh, and i thought oh that's the entrepreneur's poem we'll finish the uh, and then it became city of culture year, and i thought oh look at me i'm getting all cultured i'm reciting a poem attitude to risk uh, i think that's why uh, a lot of entrepreneurs have failed i think if you look at there's a massively disproportionate of successful uh, proportion of successful entrepreneurs that are dyslexic so they never did very well at school, so nobody expected much of them. Uh, so they, they did stuff and they're sort of half expected to fail and they found they didn't. You, you develop an attitude to failure when you're young and if your kids are at school and they're just expected to succeed, you know, and get top marks in everything, that, the pressure heaps on again, doesn't it? So I, I, was, I, was, I was sort of a bit of a failure when I was, or perceived a bit of a failure when I was young. So I, t- so I took the pressure off. And then when I started to find what I was great at and succeeding, it sort of surprised a few people, not, not least me. Uh, and then confidence grows. But uh, as the poem said, you know, what is, the, what is the alternative to taking a few risks in life? Calculated risks, not, not silly risks. You calculate the cost of getting this wrong, right or wrong and, and you think about it. And then you take it. Don't, don't kid yourself. Good entrepreneurs always know the downside and always examine the downside and are prepared to live with it and have a plan B going on because they always think things. Good entrepreneurs have the, are like wired to think risk and think 
is that if, if we fail at that stage, well, well, then we'll go to plan B and then we'll go to plan C. So it's all preordained either, well, always in their brains because it's later on when you become corporate, you have risk matrices and risk assessments and stuff. But uh, life's risky. Uh, and I think uh, drawing a positive attitude to risk is a part of drawing a positive attitude to life, as we will find coming out of this crisis. The, 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 the football there, back to football again, John. Uh, we used to use this term in football coaching many, many years ago, taking the risk of winning rather than being inhibited by the fear of losing. So many coaches, you can organise a side to be difficult to beat and, and you can coach the defensive side of the game and be really difficult to beat, but you forget to coach the attackers to go up the other end and win. So you're inhibited by the fear of losing. Whereas I think entrepreneurs tend to uh, tend to be more stimulated by the the risk of winning. You have to take risks of winning, and you have to put those fears of losing aside. Mm. And I think that's something that uh, that I mean, like many people, have spent too much time worrying about what other people think of you, and maybe being adverse to risks because you don't want to be seen to be failed and therefore you're a failure and nobody will like you and nobody respects yeah. you and that's going to affect your mental health and what your family going to think yeah. about you and so on. If you take that example of family, I'm the only person in our family ever to really run a small business and it's like, oh, oh John's great and they blow my accomplishments out of yeah. out of sense of proportion really, I think. And it's like, I don't want to let them down and of course that's important but that isn't what they're thinking about every moment of every day. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's quite self-indulgent of me to think, oh, well, I, I can't let them count down kind of thing. I think, but it's just all being, being at ease with that. And it, there's a, all the stories about trying to impress people that you don't really respect yourself. And I've definitely been guilty of all of yeah, those. Absolutely. I think as you get a bit older, you do start to relax a little bit and just be yourself, really. The, the, when you were saying that, the uh, quotations from two great statesmen came to mind. Firstly was Winston Churchill, when he said... Uh, there was a man who worried a lot about stuff, some of which even happened. Uh, and then there was uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the middle of the Great Depression. We might learn for s- something from that when we have to come out of this COVID crisis. Uh, that there's nothing, sometimes there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And I think entrepreneurs sought those two quotes, to be honest. Uh, some people think entrepreneurs are, are reckless optimists. No, they're not. No, they're not. They just look at situations and very quickly assess what might go wrong and what they will do when it does. Because things have gone wrong in the past before. If you're an A-grade student, right through school, right through university, you get a good job. You, and all of a sudden you get a situation where you fail. You don't know what failure feels like. And therefore... Everything goes up in the air. Whereas somebody who's lived a life and has tried things and have failed knows what it feels like and either doesn't like that feeling and therefore works hard to avoid it, but also realises it all passes. You know, the, 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 the sin is not failing. The sin is, the sin is not learning from it and making sure that, you know, we don't get better in the future because of the failure. Quite a young age, one of the things I never seemed to learn from was getting into fights with people I couldn't beat and quite often would stand up to the bully and then get pulverised as, as a result of that but you learn how to scrap you learn your timing you learn to do it and then you come out of it and you just, and you, you realise that you can survive and you will get all of these these knockbacks I think it's quite 
um, it's quite useful. And we've seen in terms of younger life, those time and time again, I mean, like David Holtop's work with the EntreCode, says that most entrepreneurial skills, in his opinion, can be taught, but the inner drive is the one that can't be taught. And the inner drive most often comes from trying to prove somebody wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have that? I think so. I think I must have done. When branded a failure at 11, my mum calling me a thickie and giving me a good hiding. Uh, Trust me, it's in the book. I I, I didn't really... That really didn't bother me. I wanted to go to this school anyway because I had a great football team. Uh, uh, And so I wasn't bothered about going to Beverly Grammar and going to an academy. My my path was going into the fruit business and going to sell half a lettuces at York Market. Uh, So... But I think it, later on in life, it must have manifested itself. I've probably been overcompensating ever since. Uh, I love underdog situations about your fighting. I, I, uh, I've, I've gone into areas in business and into deals where that are very unlikely, but there's a drive inside me that likes the underdog to, to come good. Uh, and upset the natural way of things because I have been kicking against the natural way of things probably most of my life. Uh, hopefully in an emotionally attractive way. But it makes it more interesting, surely. If we all just went with the flow, then... Oh, some, John, some people are made for corporate life and there's nothing wrong. You know, most decent businesses ended, and, and probably some group is now quite a big corporate business that you need. Actually, there's a lot to lose in a big corporate business. So then you set things up slightly differently. You know, people have said to me, Paul, why are we doing all this? Uh, and I said, because we've got something to lose now, whereas 30 years ago, we didn't have anything to lose, so it makes you look differently at your business. Uh, but you do have to pick out, you know, the four traits we discussed of practicing a profit mechanic leader. The fourth one I always go back is the entrepreneur, because what bigger corporate businesses lose and crush out is that pesky, entrepreneur going to places we didn't know were places therefore they appear a bit of a maverick and out of control you have to have a dash of that in any business and you've got to encourage it keep it to keep it to a a small proportion but if you don't have any of it at all you just get a a business where they're so structured there's an organization structure and you just climb that ladder and you keep your nose clean and you don't innovate and you uh, you don't make mistakes uh, and that's fine, but you never see any really, really big businesses that are great anymore, in my opinion. So are you corporate types. So the corporate types, there's been a lot of glamorisation being given to the word entrepreneur over the yeah. last 20 years um, in particular. I meet people in those kind of corporate roles who envy that or they want to do that or they want to take that leap. And I guess for a lot of them, they still can do that. It must be very difficult to do it the other way around. I think, I mean, I've never had a, what I would call a proper job. Mm. So, and people tell me I'm completely unemployable now. So yeah. that's fine. That's, yeah. that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll figure out how to make a living for the next 30 years. But I do think that for, there are many examples of people who, for a drive or because of necessity, have really had some way of unleashing that entrepreneurialism. Yeah, I don't know whether you discussed it before. You know, you, there's a plane crash and you've got to save your family. You turn entrepreneur very, very quick. And that's why uh, difficult circumstances can bring out entrepreneurialism. Uh, my, my family, 
the big fruit family where there was 20 of them, eight of them, nine of them went into the fruit trade. And if you were going to buy any fruit after the war in Hull, you were buying it from a, a, a sole uh, uh, vendor at one way or another. They, they built their businesses out of adversity after the Second World War. That's, what, that's why entrepreneurs, that's why we're going to need entrepreneurs in this recovery. You know, because they tend to uh, thrive on adversity and uncertainty where a lot of people don't. They, they get frightened about it and disappear under the duvet. The entrepreneur comes out from the duvet, rubs his or her hands and says, right, how can we make a bob or two here? Mm. Obviously, money is one side of it. Because I asked you about the cost. From your perspective, what's been the reward of all of this risk, all of this hard work, all of this achievement? Well... The money side comes last. That's what I always tell entrepreneurs. If you want to form a business, become an entrepreneur or whatever to make money, you will be inclined not to. You've got to become an entrepreneur because you want to solve a problem. Uh, you want to take somebody over there called the customer out of pain in an innovative way. And eventually you get to do that and, and, and they pay you more for that, doing that than, than your costs. And all of a sudden you're into making a living. But most people who purely come in into a business to make money don't end up majorly successful, in my opinion. Uh, they've got to be doing it for another another reason. Uh, and either, like we discussed before, it's proving some somebody or something wrong, or it can be it can be a, a compassionate thing. A lot of people get entrepreneurial when they they're going to right or wrong. My my wife is a, a social entrepreneur. She's created the Holland Welfare Trust through her dislike of animal cruelty because she reckons animal cruelty passes on to, to children etc so let's nip it in the bud there and I've seen her build that organisation based on a cause nothing to do with money uh, so that's taught me a lot and therefore the benefit of that is a sense of achievement for a goal worth pursuing yeah it's, it's fulfilment isn't it you know different things fulfil different people uh, and we've all got to make a living and pay the mortgage and want to have money gives you choices doesn't it you know the highest state of personage I think is have choices uh, but beyond that feeling that you're a half decent kid who's done a bit of good uh, and I know we're going to talk about legacy but legacy is all about leaving things a bit better than you found them and improving pe like pe people's lives on the journey uh, I think those are the really fulfilling things. And within all that, if you earn some money to pay the bills and have the choices you want, well, that's great. Yeah, I'm doing it your way. Isn't, isn't that why you start your own business and take all the hassle of, of doing that and the risks of doing that? So I guess that's why you do it in the first place. But I think doing it your way is being true to yourself and that purpose that we talked about. I think above anything, it's about your key core values. And I can't uh, uh, overestimate the uh, importance of having a set of values to run a business by. Uh, having, the, uh, having them and sticking to them is a, is a key to success, in my opinion. You know, you, you can have different skills, different situations, different purpose, even different strategies. Your values stop the same. They're, they're the ones that stop. And when you move on to other businesses that you might run you carry those key core values with you so I think sort of knowing those and uh, being aware of them and, and and knowing that they are you 
is something that, that runs right through a career, I think, John. Uh, there's a way you're going to want to do business. To me, looking at you, uh, if it's not a bit creative and not a bit different, if it's not a bit of fun and twinkling the eye, you know, if it's not very personable with your own personality, I don't think you'll be really comfortable in doing it. So it starts to get to the heart of your values. So I think that's important. I think once you have those, I think it's really key to a business that you see alignment. And by alignment, we talked earlier on about having its uh, a purpose and a higher purpose and a vision of what you want to do and, and a strategy and all that. Uh, but then you've got to take that right down to the day-to-day activity. And I see so many businesses. I say to business people uh, that, I'm, that I'm coaching, tell me your strategy. And if they can't do so in the words of a tweet, they haven't got one. If they start to pull a, a document out, that's even worse. So once they tell me what the strategy is that's going to take them towards that purpose and vision, uh, we look at the day-to-day activities. And the amount of times you look at what they're doing day-to-day just doesn't support what what you've said your vision and your strategy is up there. So I'm, we're massive. We call them a little big things at Civil Group. We're massive on the really small things to make sure there's alignment. That's why we have from our strategy, we have our goals. This is what we want to achieve this year, this month. Of those goals, these are wildly important. There's always two or three that, you know, if you don't, if you don't knock off, you can forget the rest. And that's the one you put a scoreboard against. Uh, and then you see an alignment right from the top and all the higher falutin stuff we've discussed right the way through your wildly important goals, right the way through day-to-day activities. If you can see that alignment, I'm seeing a really successful organisation. Is there always something that needs attention? Yes, there is. That's, that's why uh, businesses don't run themselves, isn't it? That brings us to the end of episode three. I hope you can join us for our fourth and final episode, Let It Be, as we discuss legacy. Copies of Paul Sewell's book, Half a Lettuce, are available upon request. Just Google Paul Sewell, Half a Lettuce, and you'll find out details of how to get hold of a copy. This has been a socially good media production by Eskimo Soup. Google Eskimo Soup or follow us on your chosen media to find out more. On Twitter, Paul is Paul E. Sewell, and I'm John Eskimo Soup. Finally, if you've enjoyed this podcast, and I sincerely hope that you have, please tell someone. Share online, rate and review on Twitter or wherever you get your podcasts.